guys, I'm here with Jared Murphy. He's um, just wrote this amazing book called It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. And um, he's, I, I'm gonna let you tell them everything that you're on because you're on a, ma a million things. So. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, we could cover that quick. I've, I've actually never done this before. So yes, I co-host Conflict Radio uh, for many episodes, but Michael's been doing it for years and uh, we have 54,000 subscribers and we do live shows tonight, actually, although this is recorded. But the last Thursday of every month, we do a live show, but we we interview people every week. We've done, uh, I've, I've interviewed Michael Cremo a few times, of course, and Christopher Dunn and uh, Mohammed Abraham, who you met in Egypt, I believe. And, and then, of course, uh, and I probably spent a few weeks with him, but then uh, I am also on Dark Hour Paranormal every month. I'm on Everything Imaginable, uh, Forbidden Knowledge News, uh, Three Beards, and I, of course, host my own show, NotAliens.com. It's on NotAliens.com, and it's for members. And then, of course, I like to keep doing field research and uh, I have archaeological work planned at the end of May or at the May 1st, the end of April, I will be doing a live lecture that you can buy tickets for. And if you want to listen to virtually, you can. Otherwise, if you want to show up, I will be doing an in-person meet and greet and book signing and lecture for three hours at America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire, May 1st. And so the lecture will be in the morning uh, from about nine to, or 10 to one. And then there'll be an opportunity to visit America's Stonehenge and we can walk the site. It'll be really awesome. And other than that, I'm on a number of shows from, I've been on Coast to Coast, Richard Hoagland's After Midnight. Um, I'm, I've been on a really, a lot of shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have. Uh, uh, Scott, well, Simon, I, I have this great friend uh, now in Scotland named uh, Simon and his show, the SLK or Slick uh, or Silk, I guess depends on how you read it. The SLK podcast is how it's spelled. And Simon King uh, is a really, uh, it's unbelievable. He's a perfectionist professional. And I've been able to, I, I, I was able to meet him just as he was starting his new podcast. But the, the man has an incredible uh, ability to dissect and manage guests in a way that the conversations are really deep. And so, and again, spelled SLK podcast and that's, yeah. and he's out of Scotland. So yeah, so since you like to travel, he's also invited, he specifically invited me. So Simon hears this, um, I'm gonna invite anyone I want now. So, you know, if you, since you know Jennifer and you, and you like to travel, you guys should, you know, definitely, you know, just join for that. So you obviously- Nothing like a few ruins in Scotland, yourself. I mean. See, but this is why I said, like, you had to introduce yourself. Yeah. Like, that's uh, so many things. That's amazing. And you totally have the gift of the gab. I listened to, like, I don't know, like, seven or eight of these podcasts now in preparation for this. And you're, uh, I mean, such an eloquent speaker. I love it. It's amazing. So what what got you into, okay, like- I did not pay her for that. <laughs> you did not. It, that's just, that's genuine. He really is. Okay. So what got you into this whole field of what's going on with the ancient history? Uh, that's a great question. I started, I can remember being five years old and nothing more interested me than being an archaeologist. And I actually have never talked about that specifically on any show. But I, you know, they're like, what got you into it? Well, I've had a lifelong interest. So two things happened. One is one of my heroes in my life was my mother's father. He was a tank commander in World War II. He was landed at D-Day in a tank. He was in the 7th Armored Division. 
and he fought through Belgium and Holland and back to France for Battle of the Bulge and was in a tank to Berlin. So from the time that I could start reading history, which was about second grade where they could they would let you take anything you wanted home. And I started with anything that had pictures of World War II. And then it was, I kind of went backwards and I went forward with history, but I had wanted to be an archeologist. And then of course, Star Wars comes out to date myself. And then I'm like, I want to tell stories and I want to write books. And so that never went away. And then I got into elementary school. And before you know it, I'm playing the violin. I didn't know I was good at it, but I ended up in the in the more advanced groups. I ended up playing seriously till I was 21. And so I always had an interest in uh, learning the arts, uh, but also questioning. I grew up Irish Catholic. And so the, the questions that could not be answered, uh, the kind of the Da Vinci Code sort of stuff, it, it was just a, a constant, why this, why that? But the one thing that did not interest me over all these years was, oh, I, I wanna find mummies like Indiana Jones. I don't want to, who cares about those old big rocks? That's lame. I mean, clearly I've seen the pictures at the Natural History Museum. That's all uh, loincloth, like rock banging. They're like, they're not advanced. That's all stupid. I want to find golden statues and mummies and like uh, not just Indiana Jones, but that show that was on a couple of years, the golden monkey. Uh, I, I want like, yeah, I want, I want to do all the, adventure stuff you see Abbott and Costello and the mummy how about the mummy with Brendan Fraser I wanted to do that stuff and it wasn't as as I kept this lifelong interest um I had written before I've I've actually written things before the the first thing I actually ever published had nothing to do with history at all not talked about this on air with anyone ever anywhere is I wrote a book called off the stall the gospel according to the john it's eight chapters of bathroom wall writing I was barked <laughs> oh yeah so yes, I literally went around and wrote down for a good time call. I actually like, but people wrote, like I organized it. There's politics, political hate, political correctness, sex, sexual frustrations, general desire. Like I organized it all off gay life or pop life. I mean, you would not believe the variety that gets written on a bathroom wall. Yeah, I didn't there's know it was a, like that in the men's because it's like that in the women's, but I didn't oh, know like yeah, because the you know, there's always that. A testimonial wall for one particular girl that maybe one person did know or didn't, but then suddenly 50 people have contributed to that one girl. And it's like that poor girl. So like, I have a whole chapter called Susan Hall because it was just like one girl. And it's like, okay, oh my gosh, this whole wall is filled with information about this one person. But yeah, I actually, so not a very serious work or del delve and dive into, it actually made it into some bookstores. It was just hilarious. So here, here I am. I decided I was going to get around to writing. I had, I had worked on a prior uh, period fictional piece called Tactics and Empire, and it's about espionage during the Civil War in England. And the more I tried to write fiction, I ended up spending, I like to do the research because I'm a history buff. So here I am finding out that the truth is stranger than fiction. No matter, every time I took a turn to write something fictional, I ended up spending 17 months doing research, finding out that, oh my gosh, you people wouldn't believe it. And I, I kept on it and then, it, but I didn't publish at the, and then what I ended up, I, and it was picked up by St. Martin's Press. They were interested. They wanted the first three chapters and then, um, then I, you know, other things happened. <laughs> so I let not worth the podcast right now, but what ended up happening was, is I was going to, 
start a new fictional work. And I've been fascinated forever with quantum mechanics and quantum physics and spintronics. And I had a background, I'd done computing. And here it is. I'm really fascinated by these Paracas long skulled people. And so literally it couldn't have been more than an hour into serious. Like I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do the real research, just like I did for my tactics and empire. And I'm going to, I'm going to work out, uh, you know, a fictional story about reanimating mummies because we're just on the cusp of that. And those mummies are going to have kind of scrambled brains and they're going to have a handler and they're going to, and, and governments are going to compete to bring back the oldest DNA evidence they can find into reanimated people so that they can then use their recall to find any lost advanced technology that's still buried on the planet. Ooh, that's a cool concept as if like, like, you know, like memory is stored in the DNA. So like the oldest DNA has like, yeah. More yep. And, and I write about that in the book is that, you know, we proved that worms can pass down of course, it starts with traumatic memories that you can actually pass down memories that genetic memory is a real thing that instinct isn't just a, I don't know why, but I'm running up the dark basement steps and I don't know why I'm running faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason it's not just that there were creepy crawly spiders snake things in the in the, in the basement. I think that we have a number of stored memories. And so I, I started on that premise one hour into research and I'm on YouTube that I've, and there was a video because I'm specifically looking about information about first off, it was really elementary. Who are the oldest mummies on earth? Uh, there were Paracas preserved to at least 9,000 years. And yes, there are those mummies in Mongolia, the redheaded, red bearded. Um, and there were other mummies that were ultimately going to prove out to be over 12,000 years. But at the time, and for the most part, and all over because of the arid climate in Peru, you have the Paracas and they are like 9,000 years old gets you really close to the Younger Dryas. So you have this world catastrophe 11 to 13,000 years ago. And so here's my chance to write a story about the Paracas. Well, I end up, oh, Colonel Percy Fawcett goes to look for the lost city of Z, just the Brad Pitt movie. Uh, and I'm not ruining it for everyone. Uh, the whole premise is that he ends up going into the jungle and he's never seen again. Uh, everyone already knows that he's lost with his son and his best friend. And, and at, at one point in the last 30 years, I believe they think they came up with his bones, but I guess that's been argued by the family because they haven't wanted to admit that they found him. But either way, a man had been surveying all of Brazil for the queen of England and for England. And he kept finding pottery shards. And I'm watching this video like, day one or two of research somewhere in here. And the first thing they do with this new adventure guy with the Indiana Jones hat, of course, you can't, can't not have the hat or wear khaki. And so here he is. And this archaeologist says, hey, I want to stop and show you something. We're going to go to the last village anyone ever saw Colonel Percy Fawcett at. And this is called Terra Preta. It's an engineered soil. And what we mean is it's really mysterious because it's really ancient and soil scientists have looked at it for hundred years. No one's ever figured out how to remake it. It's the richest growing soil on earth. It has minerals that we can't duplicate. Otherwise it, it has, they don't specifically say this, but I find out later it has piezoelectric properties. It can filter carbon dioxide. It self replicates, which a Kansas professor has been working on. What and do you mean it self replicates? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. It it never really de-energizes it. It manages itself. Okay. Uh huh. So this is day two, three of research, 
And the, all she does is take him into a, a dig in pit. So he goes in and the Terra Prada is about, it's like 12 feet above his head. And she goes, yeah, it's Terra Prada all the way down. And he's like, Hey, can I touch this pottery? And, and I do mention this in the book. You can go look up the episode, but he's, like, I'm not, he goes, I'm not ruining anything by touching this pottery. He, she goes, no, we've done everything we're going to do with this. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's 12 feet thick. And she goes, yeah, it's really interesting. There's at least an area twice the size of Spain or Great Britain. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you write that in there. It's twice I'm like, Great Britain. I'm like, e what? Yeah. And then it's like, hold on. We don't know how to make it. It's engineered. And, and everywhere on earth, dynastic peoples, which are Egyptians, Aztecs, Mayans, Olmecs, Toltecs, uh, indigenous peoples from Australia to America, there are lots of people who have taken over or uh, been living near it more advanced humans. Right now, we have 150 something tribes. We leave them alone, essentially, and they live on the planet and they do what they do. Meanwhile, uh, this woman says, yeah, this Terra Preta, the identical recipe. Oh, it's in North Africa. It's in Central America. Oh, it's in Australia. And I'm like, uh, does anyone see a timeline issue? If you <laughs> yeah. have Terra Preta, that's all over. And then I start looking, it's not just Terra Preta. And that's just Portuguese for basically black soil, black earth. And then it turns out that there is a illegal export of black soil called Chernozums in Ukraine. And then it turns out this Chernozum's in, it's in the United States. It's here in Minnesota. It's all through the Great Plains. It's in Canada. Yeah. It's every, yeah, it's everywhere. And you're like, hold on. So, so for, how it, similar the, is that to, is that Terra Preta or is, are, are they two different? Well, it's a different, it's a, it's like Pepsi and Coke. Is it, they're both colors, right. I cool. guess, but they're different they recipes. Either way. Right, right. And, and so then the other issue is, well, you know, uh, isn't it just that a forest fire happened and it trapped a bunch of animals and there was a bunch of leaves and no, it's a know, consistent mixture, right? Yeah, 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 right. It's a it's like a potting soil that you would go to your local big box retailer and buy and say I need potting soil and it would have a certain amount of chemicals in it. And so and yes, and it's like how do soil scientists who are, I mean, there's big business uh, whether you name off the big corporations that there've been, you know, Netflix documentaries on like Monsanto. Mm -hmm. There's serious business for many, many years uh, on soil for, excuse me, for growing food, which includes right here, uh, soil crop rotation. That's a given, like most people know, it's like, well, you gotta rotate the crops. Well, that was developed on the Kelly farm here in Minnesota. That's still a working scientific research center off of Highway 10 that you can tour. There's a visitor center. The Kelly Farm was where they developed the science around crop rotation, which then during after the Civil War, they also needed to teach how to do this in the South. And that technology passed down because Kelly was also a Mason, which is a whole nother story. And then, of course, it gets worldwide uh, propagated that, well, you know, you got to rotate crops, right? But here's this Terra Preta that's been looked at even under electron microscopes and they can't quite, they can't work it out. And it also has piezoelectric properties, which is really important that we're not talking like electrocute you, we're just talking- Like quartz sand, piezoelectric properties such as like, the, what is it? Just like quartz, like fine granulars of quartz or something or how? 
well as in like morris code like you could pretty much run a current you could really you could run a current through the soil which means that just like when you walk barefoot and you have an electron discharge it's not just as elementary as oh yeah of course you know the earth attracts electricity and then it goes to the center of the earth and it keeps you know magic whatever and it's not that simple it's a matter of there was a society and this is so this is where my research starts three and a half years later when you have engineered soil all over the planet and it has all these different qualities one is you start thinking oh they were using it for growing food but what we're learning now and have since nasa invented aeroponics which is where you atomize water to 30 to 50 microns and the atomized water is something that the roots of plants, including seeds, can use to sprout and become the plant. And that's important if you're going to go on long space voyages. So NASA in the 70s had developed a way to grow without soil and a minimal amount of water. And that's what aeroponics is, because there's aquaponics where you're doing aeroponics mixed with uh, fish, which are in water, but it's not hydroponics where the plants are floating in the water because that takes a lot of water. But aeroponics is a lot like those misters when you're at a bar and it's super fine mist, it hits your skin, you feel cool, but it evaporates like basically instantly. And so we're learning that we don't need soil to grow food. So part of developing my next book and the work that I'm doing with Jennifer Dale, the archaeologist, uh, her and I are, you know, continuing, there, there's just too much in one book, you can't, really expand on it. You can't really, uh, you have to build out the process. And part of one of the things to imagine then is, is one, I don't believe we're at the largest population we've ever been at. I think we're actually wow. not even close, but it's not because there's, when that woman said on that documentary that, oh, there's an area that we're guessing is twice the size of Great Britain or Spain. And then they don't know and they're not done. It's not like there's somebody taking a core sample every square mile to say, well, we figured out how much Terra Preta is here. They're not, they're not doing that. So the process for us to figure out, we, we know that Terra Preta and other engineered soils also filter heavy metals and they filter carbon dioxide. So if you have a worldwide population, which currently Michael Tellinger actually uh, gave me this analogy uh, and he has to get credit for this is that right now, if you round up to our world population of 8 billion at the time, it was like seven, seven or something, or the estimate was, but if you took 8 billion and gave them an acre, they basically would live in two South Africa's or two Texas's. Mm -hmm. If you gave every human being an acre, now you can make an argument. Well, you need to build roads and you need to build shopping centers. So we're still talking about the entire planet basically being unoccupied. And well, I don't I think based that on- whole concept of like, basically the world's population could live in about the way San Francisco's like their three-story thing, um, mm. that density within um, like the size of New Mexico. You could, you could, you could triple or quadruple them up like that. You could do it in two tech. You could do it in one Texas, you know, give everybody multi-story living. Yeah. Um, and again, that's still an acre per person. And so that is a significant amount of land. That is still a significant amount of space left. It's literally that just the whole makes planet. You realize how much we have left to explore. Like we act like we've, we've, we've yeah. all up, but I mean, like, that's just so much. We really live amongst these little highways and these little roads and these little towns that we can go in and we don't really know what's out there. 
No, I think you're right. I think the blinders that you just did are a great example, except I would add one on the bottom and one on the top. Like people oh. really live boxed in. I mean, they live in, they, they, and to, to a point, what do we say? We say we're 15 to 20% conscious and within that perspective and, and then the theories being proved out over and over about even in the last 70 years, the idea of a collective human consciousness is there. It ties into genetic memory. It ties into what some people would call paranormal and say, oh, well, you know, I remember being Cleopatra. Why don't you remember being Bill, the pooper scooper guy at the zoo? Why are you always someone famous? Aren't you just, and then, and then what's true is that some people do psychic, uh, they do psychic therapy where there have been, I've even seen published examples of people saying, well, yeah, I think I lived on a farm and I think I was a farmer. And of course, given how populated the earth has been and given the random possibilities that they, they literally point to an area that they have verified like, hey, we just went to a field where you said you lived and there's a farm and they have no idea. They've never been there. There's you know verified second checks that they're not like they didn't go sort it out first and then have a dream and then make it up. So there are people who think that they were normal people, but then therein lies the question. We have a very elementary understanding, not only, not that we're all very spiritual beings, but uh, we have a very elementary understanding. We, we relate to our spiritual being through a very indoctrinated Western or Eastern religious post younger driest uh, definitely in the last 6,000 years, we have developed religious uh, institutions, which are not who you are spiritually. They're just corporate institutions. And, and most of the world is not Christian. That's what's so yeah. fascinating. And, and, but and it doesn't matter all the monotheistic or anything that like makes you look to something else takes away your own personal sovereignty. And, it's, yeah. and, that, and that promotes like your lack of exploring anything within yourself so i think that's uh that's been promoted all over the world no matter what religion you are you 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 have teed me up for the first time ever to finally be able to quote van halen and god rest eddie you know but uh van halen but uh mine all mine stop looking up start looking in be your own best friend stand up and say this is mine mine all mine that's <laughs> nice. that's it that is uh oh, that's ou812 that is like the best Okay, I love Van Halen, but that is definitely an incredible album, start to finish. But mine, all mine. Um, uh, yeah, that that's I think a good, a really great point in that we put those religious filters on, and then we negate the complexities of not only ourselves but of our past. So we have people like Wim Hof, you know, superhuman people reactivating these abilities to consciously control your immune system, consciously control your inflammatory response. And then at the end of the day, uh, there, there, there are people who try to monetize that and hide it. And then there's people like Wim and Steve Severinsen that are like breathology that I did not do Steve's version, but he's the guy who sat on one breath for 22 minutes in a pool of basically ice cold water. And here's the thing, it's not the, and he's broken a couple of whims records, but the issue isn't the longevity of not breathing. Um, the issue is the control, the conscious control of your inflammatory response, your immune system. Well, they've given then, Wim Hof like diseases, it, like injected yeah. diseases. And yep. been like, yep. oh. yeah. And, and, and those, those documentaries are out there for people to watch. The first time Wim came to America, I was there with the first hundred something people. Did I learned how to Wim like Hof. Cold water submerging we, thing 
we did the whole thing, all of us together. I went out with three, three friends and the four of us got to meet Wim Hof and not like stand in line. I mean, if you do a Wim Hof thing, if it's not a giant, I know he's doing like really large events now, but Wim doesn't stay on a stage and he's there with everyone and he talks to everyone. Wim is exactly how you see him in the show. You're just going to feel like you know him. And I got to meet with the rest of the group that was with him, but we were on Treasure Island in San Fran. It was the very first American uh, tour and so or visit. So here we are. And I'm learning how to Wim Hof with Wim Hof and we're learning the breathing technique and the, and all of us are sitting there and the sensations, the feelings, the, uh, have you tried it? I have his app and I've done like the, you know, all those things where you yeah. I've, I've tried it, but I have not tried the cold water. Uh, yeah. How, how the breathing go? I mean, awesome. Like I, I noticed, I felt like I was going to faint. Like I you definitely have to be in a sitting down position. Oh yeah. Don't do it while you're driving pillows around me kind of yeah. thing. I was like, all right, yeah. no, no glass tables. Stay away from the glass tables. Yeah. I, I, and, I actually want to get more into it. I kind of felt like I needed more of a one-on-one and or not one-on-one. I, I needed an yeah, in-person need, thing instead of an app. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think I, so we were the first people in America to do it and I did it because I had a friend with an autoimmune disease. And he said, have you heard of this guy, Wim Hof? And I said, no. Well, he has an autoimmune disease and had been taking shots. And he, through becoming paleo slash kind of a version of it, and he was always looking at stuff that would help him. He, he's an epically good health. But uh, he tells me about Wim Hof and I go Google him. And I'm like, hey, did you know he's gonna be in San Fran? And he's like, no, and I'm like, we're gonna go. And so that's how that came up. And then the next thing you know, I'm sitting there and we're doing the breathing technique and we do our exhale and I climb. I like to climb. I like uh, outdoor, indoor, just rock climbing. And so my friends are all climbers. And so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a decently healthy group, but we're sitting there with people who are like yogis and I don't know who's there, but it's like, it was some pretty diehard people. Cause it was like, just like a hundred people ain't that many people when you're all in the room and whim is there we are doing it. And the first time we exhaled and we didn't breathe and you, and you, again, you don't force it, but I, we went two minutes and 34 seconds yeah, at cool. the first time. And I remember the first time I went five minutes without breathing. And then I'm like, Oh, this is trippy. Cause I heard, cause I use a certain set of, I'm all about brain entrainment and self-experimentation. And I really do list that in my bio for a reason. And so here I am. And I noticed like, there are so many things going on inside you. Like, did you get the fuzzy feelings at all? Did you get Yeah, the- I got the tingly stuff, but I didn't, I never got to a place of, you know, I've actually, I very rarely have gotten to this with the meditation and stuff in general. Like I can't get to that place of just nothing like absolute stillness um uh yeah i think that's i joke about that i i don't see that like when we're in yoga classes uh for climbing specifically and they're like yeah i leave your problems at the door and i'm like f that guy that just cut me off on the freeway i am not thinking i'm not i'm like leave my problems what are you talking about clouds you're an idiot like i i cannot stand and by the way you're english you're american you speak english stop trying to sound like you're hindi you're not stop using the words just say <laughs> bend over like a dog like downward dog don't say sinatra or whatever yeah whatever the hell it is i mean come on you're not hindi just say forward bend left bend right bend give it an american name i mean come on i mean it's just i can order general so's chicken without knowing exactly is it so is it to sow is it 
T cell. I mean, like just, I want number 26, you know, Ben 29, but either way, uh, it was funny listening to Wim, by the way, side note, people were raising their hand and, and people were like, so do you breathe more through your nose or your mouth? And Wim Hof is famous for this. And I caught it in between because people can't actually talk entirely the way Wim, Wim is spectacular. And here he is. And he's like, oh, in through any, uh, wait, can we, oh, we can't swear on this. Can we okay, swear on this? I don't care. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is Wim, by the way, I'm paraphrasing, but Wim's like, in through any hole, motherfucker. It doesn't matter. You like holes. You know what I'm talking about. Breathe, motherfuckers. <laughs> if you have a hole, breathe. And then someone goes up and whispers to him and they're like, oh, I hear there's kids here. I guess I'm going to have to fucking square with that less. And it was phenomenal. That was Wim in person. And his big thing is oxygenating has nothing to do with the deified, mystified, mysterious. Like if you have to think about clouds, you are doing it wrong. And when we were breathing, uh, what happened was, is I went from like, okay, I'm going to breathe. So I'm still going to be thinking about what we're going to do for lunch, or I'm going to do what I do during any meditation. I'm going to, part of my brain is going to be like, I'll, I, I'm going to not hate this, or I'm going to be this. I'm going to not think that this is stupid. And then uh, you get those, like you were saying, those fuzzy tingling sensations, but then there's a pulse to it. And when you're doing it regularly, I can only describe my experience with it too. And I know I've listened to other people and they've tried to explain it to people. So just for everyone out there, I'm not saying this is the same for everyone. It's definitely different. And there are definitely people who, um, who definitely, um, they have passed out. There, there are things that have happened to people, uh, but you definitely don't, don't do it while you're driving. But here I am. And not only do I get the tingling sensations, but as, and again, you know, when you do, there's a 60 day training thing. I suggest the 60 day training course. And I don't know if that's in the app. So when, because we were the first people in America to do it, uh, we got a membership. And I think it was exactly for these reasons to promote things. And, but at the, but the deal is I would not tell anyone, I don't tell anyone to watch a movie, read a book or do anything. If I didn't think it was like really epic, uh, people have different tastes. Like, I know I'm one of the weirdos on earth. I'm not a huge fan of dumb and dumber. I love Jim Carrey, but I never liked dumb and dumber. Like yeah. I just, eh. and I like dumb. I like Monty Python. I like letter Kenny. I like, I love letter Kenny. I love Rick and Morty, but I hated dumb and dumber. I just, Oh, anyway. yeah, I, I, so I here we are. That. It was a little too dumb for me. I was kind of like, okay. yeah. And, and like, um, Austin powers, the first one couldn't watch it. Like there are very few movies I could not, not watch. And I'm like, this sucks. Everyone on earth loves that movie. I think most people love it. I did not, but I liked the second one, the one with fat bastard. God, that one was funny though. The Dutch, I hate the Dutch, you know, that, that one was just funny. And I, I did like that. So I'm not against dumb humor. I just, some things I, you know. Right. So everybody has different, different strokes for different. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, when you do this technique, the thing that I found was, is that for every time I've done yoga and somebody's like, think of your problems and leave them at the door and be present. I'm like, I hate the guy that cut me off. And I hate you for saying that and speak English and you're totally not Hindi. And so Instead of that, when you do Wim Hof, it's like a switch. And for me, uh, as you breathe and you do the 60 day program, 
uh, you do three rounds of breathing and then you do five rounds of breathing. And then there's, as you dig into it, you learn that you could maybe even do the meditation for up to 45 minutes or an hour. The longest I've ever gone is not sitting. Uh, I could get into it, but it's, I did it for five, six hours and not, yeah, not just for not just sitting though. I did it actively in movement. I took what, cause the, the thing about what Wim does is he does it while he's talking to people, you know, it's not like a mystified Tibetan Tomo where they're sitting in, you know, it's men in a secret temple doing it the secret way. And then they're, you know, they're cooling, they're heating, uh, frozen blankets and they're doing this meditation. They're showing the heat signatures and they're like, yeah, here's a secret technique that they've been doing for three or 4,000 years. You and keep it's like, it up on a regular basis. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you can do is um, what I was fascinated, what originally triggered it was, is like whim was you could sit down and do the breathing technique uh, as a meditation, but you don't have to think about the clouds. You don't think about anything. What happens is, is that those pulses and th- those, uh, fuzziness is those that but they they lead into for me they led into a control where it was almost like an electronic beat uh not like a a song but like a steady heartbeat and but not a heartbeat so it's more like an electronic mental neural heartbeat along with you're doing the breathing technique and and i don't know what the consistency was to it like one minute i i would do an exhale and hold it'd be two and a half minutes the next minute you know it's like, wow, the next round was three and a half, you know, uh, 320, 350. And then I remember for no reason when it went to five minutes and then you're like, and it's not that you're sitting there going, I wonder how much time's passed or I like this part of the song. There is no time in my mind to be distracted by that. There is this grounding and plug in, I believe, to everything around you. The actual, not woo woo, but the actual energy and connectivity that you really do have the potential to control, which includes, like you said, they injected Wim with a dead form of uh, E. coli, basically, and he meditated through the inflammatory response. And then there's a whole documentary about how he brought back uh, people he trained over the course of 10 days. And it's all documented. It's all on film and it's all in a university lab setting. And then they all meditate through the inflammatory response. And there's these other reactions. And But that's just an but I saw him doing two and a half hours. He's breaking a record. He was sitting in ice uh, up to his neck and he's controlling his temperature. And what I saw, what I thought was fascinating was, is that they made a point to point out that he could talk to people. So not like a bunch of woo woo monks in a hill, uh, not sharing what they do. Here's Wim Hof who's sharing with everyone, all these techniques and going to all these universities and taking all these tests and showing that everyone can do this. And again, not as frequently mentioned, but as important on the Discovery Channel, considered superhuman is Steve Severinsen, or you know. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just totally going to destroy his name. But here's uh, examples of men that are consciously controlling their immune systems and their inflammatory response and their breathing. But it's not that you're sitting there going, "Gosh, what am I going to do in 45 minutes?" If you really do it for more than three rounds, if you if you keep doing it by the second round, I think it's harder for people to get into. So if you are distracted. Uh, maybe everyone has an internal switch that's slightly different where you're like, I'm having a hard time just taking a full breath and then exhaling and then getting the full breath and exhaling. Cause it, well, the way we were doing it, the very first meeting was it was full exhale, full inhales, and then a full exhale, not an over exhale, but full inhale and an exhale. And it got really loud with a hundred something people doing that. But here's whim 
in ICE talking with people. And they make a point in one of the documentaries to say, at some points, the meditation has to be revisited specifically. And Wim said, okay. And I remember he said, shut the F up. I need to focus for a minute because they had told him his kidney or they had monitors all over his body. And they're like, hey, this thing is getting cold. And they literally monitored him while he stopped having a casual conversation in the meditative state. He focuses again and warms and they watch the sensor of that part of the body warm up. And that's the kind of control I think that's not hyper control, like turn all the soup labels the same way, like I'm a psycho control. But I think that's the kind of intimacy with engineered soil the entire human race once had. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a that's a good bringing that one around. Um, huh? <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> she meant for that to happen. It's the um, cosmos. It's interesting because you. you mentioned um, the Guatemala basin and I went to Tikal and I, um, you know, I was, I was walking around in Tikal and it's not just like, oh, there's 60,000 buildings or whatever. And they're like, people would have lived in these houses. They're, they're like huge. Like it was a New York city. It was, I, I don't know. How, it, it's it, that big it's that big and when you're actually there walking around like it take i i was there for two days like it, you it it's really hard to get first of all it's really hard to get there in general but it's also um when you go up they've only excavated like 20 pyramids the rest of the it's stuff so it's so sad it's there's nothing excavated but you can still you can just go to the top of one and you can look up and all these peaks and everywhere you're looking at you can see it's an unexcavated building that place is like the most fast one of the most fascinating ruins place i've ever been in my entire well, life what did you think uh, so of the ruin that you got to go up did you see and uh, jennifer and i were just talking about the mayans and how they took again it's like giant megalithic block little tiny little it's like this is not the same builder they clearly, the Mayans came well, in. Well, they have even three different phases of building that they attribute when you're there. They're like, oh, these were the first ones, second. I mean, yeah, there, and there are some megalithic stuff, but also there's so much that we don't know because they haven't dug, they've they like one, one archeology, span like Richard Hansen, they have one group down there doing, I, I mean, it's that. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And Did it's you meet also him? very traditional um, archeology span down there. There's nobody else, but I don't, I, I mean, um, did you did you meet did you meet him i did or I actually got i actually got to meet him he was very nice actually oh uh, i'd love to talk to him i'd love to have him on a show yeah if he's if you if you have, i have but, his email address so i'll see if oh I that's brilliant uh so the the reason i wanted to ask you is that if you got to the top of one of those so what did you see personally and this is my point for everyone listening and I think it's an absolutely worthwhile endeavor is to notice every time you watch one of these shows, irrelevant to what they're saying, like if they say one more time that a pyramid was used for burial, okay, you know, and yeah. skip all the dynastic stuff. But when you see these large, you know, 100, 800, 50 ton megalithic blocks, it's always the most complex. It's not just that they're big blocks. It's always basalt. It's always limestone. It's always granite. It's always a combination and it always has to do with, I think, piezoelectric properties, which means I think these buildings were connected to the soil itself. Okay, well, actually you touched on this with Jin and this is something I've been saying for a while, um, ever since I went to Egypt. I think that granite might be uh, 
a mixture. I think that like, I think a granite might be. Sure. That hell looks like it. Yeah. Because it's like the feldspar, the, the, uh, the quartz, yeah. whatever the percentages are so evenly mixed and like, yes, there are quarries, there are places you can find that, but what if that was the concrete mixing plant, you know? Um, right. On a scale that was much larger. You, you right. explain to me how, give me the natural in the, in the most theoretical sense. Yeah. And melting lava, if it's put in the crucibles of the, you know, the, the earth is, if it, if it's doing this, why is it going to give you a cookie? Like a, you know, right. Right. Why is it that like in the world of Plato, how did the earth mix exactly correct percentages for consistency in a block that is actually separate stones or quartzes or uh, crystals? How the hell did granite, and a lot of people don't realize that there is no, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I've heard no theories on how granite's made. And that's so out there for people that I don't even talk about it because it, it's like, well, we just don't know. We're going to sort it out one of these days. And it's like, okay. Well, I was a geology major in my undergrad for um, the first three years. Then I became an art history major and I got a master's in art history. But anyway, the thing was, is like when I was in geology, I remember like, like even microscopically looking at some of this stuff going, yeah, but like this liquid would form at a different temperature than this. Like, so it doesn't even make sense that they would be so evenly distributed you know it's kind of like one of those things where you know get glass and stuff everything has different melting points and that's yeah. why it became whatever it is or isn't and so some of these conglomerate rocks don't make logical sense to me because i don't see how the earth would have naturally done that in a molten state which is what they argue how many different stones besides granite did you see in your geology classes that look like granite I mean, there's, there are, I mean, like, like, you know, there's rose granites, very popular in Egypt. There's different kinds of granites, but yeah, no, uh, there's, uh, not well, that that's, that well. So uh, I'll stop leading the question of the stones that we find in megalithic construction. How many of them are stones that exhibit qualities that look more of manufacturer themselves than rando like, oh yeah, you know, they built this pyramid with a polygonal block that's super random in the stone itself. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. I will say Tikal was built out of a lot of chalk. Like you could run your fingers on a brick and it would, it would be, it would. So um, therein lies the issue of how much of it was rebuilt, how much of it was you're a dynastic survivor, you're, you're a post flood survivor culture that mainstream academia points out that about 50,000 years ago, we have Neanderthal, Denisovan, a mystery 14% human race, and us all mix. Why? How many people were left on the surface? And how many people were left surviving after now a series of catastrophes from the Younger Dryas? Forget 55,000 years ago. But here we are, and you come across what's left of a giant pyramid, and there's one that the foundation is left or like a half a wall. And you're like, ready-made society. Mm -hmm. We have spears. How hard is it then once it's in front of you in your mind's eye to go, well, that's we want it to look. It's already sort of built. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a pile of rock over here that looks like it goes with what would have been, well, this pile. So let's restack it. 
And that's exactly what you see. Sakse Waman, Oyante Tambo, uh, Angkor Wat, everywhere, uh, Egypt, keystone cuts that have been turned sideways and twisted. And, you know, with the usually the, a block, for anyone not, who doesn't know, keystone cuts are little metal collectors. Uh, it looks like a, a key between, it looks like a dog bone time. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they've been connected to, another polygonal block, but they're always horizontal as if the metal was poured in. And these are ridiculous because the blocks are so big and so well connected with the polygonal construction, there's no way they're gonna move. So what would be the other reason to put metal between the blocks unless it's for piezoelectric, maybe low frequency energy reasons. And we always look at these constructions and go, well, they knew how to cut super tight polygonal construction and put these blocks together like marshmallows and they know apparently how to engineer soil but they didn't know anything about wood you know right. they didn't know anything about finished materials so i'm super I mean, curious and they had sock bees they have like these the road systems like within like for instance, yeah yeah like the sock bees were like modern day highways or bigger like they're huge yep the earliest conquistadors I remember got lost in the earliest of uh, early 1500, like 1515 or whatever it was. They, there was an account that said the road they came up on was bigger, badder. It stretched on straight, did not deviate. They didn't have any idea how far it went. And they said, this rivals anything we've ever seen in Rome. And now, okay, so you have to call. I'm super curious. Because I haven't actually met a lot of people who have actually been physically there. How much of the megalithic block did you see with the small reconstructions? How much of the of what was exposed? Of every megalithic block that we did, like there were actually a lot of really anomalous, like rounded, big. Um, it's almost like they used them as ornamentals inside of uh, uh, the middle of um, plazas or something. But there were yeah, uh, there were a lot of big megalithic blocks like that. But then um, the base—that's the thing, though. Even the base of all these pyramids isn't even, I think, completely dug out. Like I don't, I don't think not one ground zero on. I the main the main part that they've reconstructed. Um, that's the other thing. Their reconstruction's pretty reconstruction, you know? <laughs> well, that's like, that's like what we were looking at with Jennifer when we were doing our Mayan episode just last week. Oh my gosh. It's like, how do you look at this? Anyone who's in construction, like I've been in for 20 years and doing historical remodeling, which is a joke compared to something that's tens of thousands or thousands of years or dynastically 4,000 years old. I mean, I mean, the stuff I work in is uh, the oldest thing I've worked on is 1869. And and we think that's old. And it is old, but not like 4,000 like years old. Years. Yeah. But the great thing about weight, gravity, uh, lenteled, uh, cantilevered architecture, it doesn't seem to change with gravity. And so if you're going to build something, the techniques to build something in mass, to build a single item, uh, whether it's a skyscraper or a single family home. And I've worked commercial and residential, but the issue is when you look at it, no one builds with polygonal, well-cut, well-fit, well-scienced blocks, and then says, eh, let's just use river rock and put it on the top and uh, forget about wood. Let's just chop trees and put some grass on it with some mud. No, that's the story we're told and the drawings were given at natural history museums. It's insane. 
And it's important for those that have heard it already, but when you can wash that away and stop using references to absolute misleading, untrue Zachariah Sitchin work and, 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 and other religious goggles and then timelines that are fictitious by of dead Victorian researchers that literally they're, they're, they're it's embarrassing that it's not updated that that's the theories that are like, well, we got to go with this because we just charged this guy 250 for, uh, you know, 250 bills, like 250,000. He just gave why us. You, why we, do you think that you know? is really like, cause I mean, it's gotta be for me, this is where the conspiratory part of my, me comes in, but like, it's gotta be more than just, Oh, you know, um, it, it just would rock the academic world a little too much. So they don't, I mean, it's gotta be more than that. Part of it is like, what happens if we said to everyone, I've tried to jump, I, yeah, I've tackled it. I've, I've tried to, it frustrates me every time. Part of it says, okay, here's the truth. Big news conference. So we did not, we want to, right. So let's just, let's just say we go at it and the, the news conference is, hey, um, so we lied to everyone we have been misleading the general public about our entire history. Now we had good reason because there's an advanced group of humans. They are our ancestors and they survived a massive multiple catastrophes, some of which they induced themselves. They live here because you see UFOs. Uh, they've been here as the reason you currently say that we think UFOs have always been here. Well, that's because they're our ancestors because We've been trying to mislead you with these giant cymatic polygonal earthquake stopping frequency energy machines. And well, we tried to tell you they were pyramids and tombs. And then we've tried to mislead you and say that, you know, dynastic people made them because, you know, we can't have you understand that these were actually for regenerating. And it's likely that you have an indefinite lifespan. There's no reason for the cellular system to degrade. And uh, well, they live forever pretty much now, but they weren't quite there. And they've been basically manipulating the timeline in history because one of the other missing components is collective human consciousness. You know why Da Vinci could only come up with like a spiral corkscrew thingy with like things he could think of is because there was a half a billion people on the planet, but now we got 8 billion. And although we have buildings of academic research the truth is is that we have collective human ram to eight billion people and that is an infinite amount of mind uh tapping that is now being used to come up with spintronics and graphing switches and quantum computers and where we are now is because actually we ultimately need the entire global population to be back to i'm going to just pick a number for no reason this is a first uh, 120 billion and until we get there, we're never really going to re-unlock the combination, the, con the convergence of like the singularity. The singularity is not going to happen until we converge the total amount of humans uh, and collective human consciousness and uh, the technology and all of it will come together and the singularity will happen. But we're not there. So just so you know, everyone is basically feudally living, but we just need more people to be born than die. And we hope you have a good time while you're here. But there was no point in telling you that because there's nothing you can do. Like, how would that like? Yeah, I guess so. But okay, so then, so then that, 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 that brings me to this whole thing. So like, 
like I think have you looked into the inner earth theory and all that stuff like or like, I'm, stuff yeah like let me give you what Eric this is what Eric Van Danigan said in person I remember I was at my first contact in the desert and they went down a panel and uh the last person they asked was Eric uh what do you think of what do you think of the hollow earth and he goes I think it's complete poppycock bullshit something and he's recorded you can actually get this this is from contact the last one they did in joshua tree and he's like it's just rubbish and and here's the thing he goes do you think that and he goes yes is there large pockets of the earth are there large caverns are there and and i don't mean natural he meant rock cut like when he went to bolivia with buzz aldrin they were going to go look at the rock cut ruins and there are serious underground systems that are laser cut that are I say laser for detail. I mean it figuratively. I'm not saying they use Star Trek lasers and made holes. I mean, they just, we have very highly advanced uh, ruins that are underground. But yeah, I do I think that the earth is hollow? We don't really know how electricity- Okay, how about this? Do you like, think that these advanced civilizations, like, do you think there's breakaway civilizations that live somewhere like, and are the ones who are the UFOs that people are seeing? Right. So this is what's so it is easier for everyone to understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like even anthropologically, we're interesting uh, to the rest of the galaxy. I mean, like we eat, we have sex, we die. I mean, who doesn't want to come study that from a dimensional force? Like, that's why they're here, because we're fascinating. Like one more episode of Friends, everyone. And and so the reality is that uh, it's easier for people like the whole reason we came up with the hundredth monkey theory is that, well, all these pyramids just simultaneously happened because humans just thought, screw it, let's all build pyramids. And that's literally what they came up with. The quantum, the idea of collective human consciousness came from the idea that it was easier to accept collective human consciousness because everyone randomly decided to make pyramids than it is to go, no, there was a highly advanced human culture on this planet that failed, that fell apart, that was in massive catastrophes and not in one catastrophe. You don't build megalithically if you're not expecting a flood. You don't build megalithically if you're not expecting to get well, just your- And pyramids are super stable maybe for that purpose. Right. And, and, and then we are negating all the metal and, and, and again, we, if they can move a 3000 ton block, they can cut a meta sequoia, the granddaddies of sequoias. They can manage redwoods that were 60 feet in diameter, like Hyperion, that's 380 feet tall. They could, and mind you, remember the scrub trees we see outside, that's not forest. And like, oh, I've seen 100 foot trees. No, 379 foot, 60 plus foot wide diameter. I think not only did they engineer the soil, but the trees that they managed and the wood that they had, when you look at Ollante Tambo and Sacsayhuaman and Egypt, and you look at these buildings, you think, oh yeah, they worked with stone. No, they also worked with wood. They also worked with metal. And they built buildings and they said, this far down and over under the ground, when this tectonic plate shifts, it's gonna create a particular frequency. And that means that this building above ground, not to mention the foundation below ground, has to be built with the correct polygonal pattern that allows the transfer and muting of not only that earthquake, but of also managing the piezoelectric information that's coming through the ground itself to and from these buildings. This is a society that can easily manage and handle. First off, how do you get a chicken before an egg? You engineer a chicken, you make a chicken.
human. It, there's no animal on earth we have found yet that we give credit to be natural biology that is not, we assume that it's natural. We find three to 5,000 creatures alive a year for the last 40 years. So what does that mean? Somehow it is still easier for people to go, yeah, there's aliens here. It's not that somebody from somewhere, someplace couldn't visit us. The issue is all the evidence in the ground shows that a very advanced human population that could manage energies, frequencies, scalar waves, uh, we're high Tesla, stuff that we're just rediscovering, the Paracas, the elongated skulled people, a mystery human genomes. The reality is based like that city off the coast of Cuba that's 2,300 feet deep. It's not that they're ancient and made of stone. It's the complexity of the constructions. We don't know whether they were coated in metal if they had uh, plastics, if they were using other material sciences and nanotechnologies. What we have though, is a constant, uh, like, the, like the lithograph, the, the plate, the carving of the battle over Nuremberg, over the Baltic, over Northern Germany in the 1500s of what looks like aerial combat. You have slivers of truths. You have the oldest religious record on earth, the Hindu Vedas talking about airships and aerial combat and the gods, those are slivers of truths. The real matter is, isn't it not more likely based on the evidence on the ground? We could just talk like three episodes on what are the out of place, out of time artifacts and sciences that are showing that a highly advanced race, us humans fell in that falling based on like Wallace Wagner's new book uh, about, uh, the, the, you know, cro the crossing the crevasse. I've interviewed him a few times now. And Wallace's book is talking about UFOs in the Bible. But he also mentions that a Roman army was about to go to town with a king in like 70 something AD. Thousands witnessed the falling of a, mer of a mercury silver colored uh, four foot a very high-tech object, not a, just a random meteor or blob of metal, but a very high-tech object falls between the two armies. And they're like, maybe the gods don't want us to fight today. And it, and it put out the fight. But we've had uh, the battle over Los Angeles. Uh, we, okay, there's a whole list of UFO sightings that were seen by hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people simultaneously. And not a single object, I'm talking about the instances where there's been combat to answer your question. If you're a highly advanced human and have full conscious control of your brain, how hard is it for you to change your genes? You're in full control of your genes. What does that mean? It means that right now we have custom designer babies. You want to change a hair color. You want to change a smarts. I want mine to be better at piano. I want mine to be better at football. Dumb stuff like that. Not a holistic human being that can reconnect to this broken computer that we're on and safe mode that we're in. But why then, if we have F-18 fighter jets with mind control to weapon systems, that's a thing. We have that. If I was a wave and frequency energy controlling anti-gravity using human, Maybe if I'm going to do zero point turns at Mach 30, I should probably be shorter, white, and with eyes that have an ocular display that allow me to direct connect and see through. Our skin sees infrared. 
uh, there's a whole neurologist that does a TED talk. There's a whole series on how the skin is the first organ developed in the body, but that it that it actually sees infrared, that there's information, there's a neural network in human skin that we aren't using, but the skin's using and it's taking on and through information. So if you want to be in a certain kind of external technology, and right now our technology is like the technology we're using, I'm saying biological technology, but for what appears to be a gray or uh, an alien, yeah, right that that's a human and that that human has modified themselves for that technology that they're using to fly. However, what does the lithograph, what does this uh, image of aerial combat and the gods fighting from the Hindu texts and the Nuremberg stuff and the other, where it appears that uh, there was a battle in ancient times that was seen that Wallace brings up in his book, where you have clearly some people on the planet that do not get along with each other. So that's where I like to describe the human survivors as more of like a cruise ship, kind of like the episodes of Lost, the TV (laughs) show, where you have a group of people who are like, I hate your ass. Um, I hate you. And it's like, fine, we'll take as much technology this way and you take as much technology and go that way. And then at the end of the day, you have two warring human factions that have been on the planet or three or four that are not getting along and they still don't get along, maybe. Yeah. Because they're not across. So, but, but we yeah, don't so even. Cons- they're here. They've always been here. They are humans. They are us. They are us. We are them. Yeah. But we're in the gutters of survival. But not, but they, they, they maybe, but I guess maybe they didn't all go back down to caveman ground zeros after. No, we are basically like we are Orson Welles, the 19th, the badass 1960s version. We are the warlocks. We are that. We are the we are the ground dwelling, bark eating, uh, made it despite the disaster. Yeah. Uh, mixed with Denise Van, mixed with Neanderthal, mixed with whoever the hell was left on the planet that could think, and we were left to our own devices. Which is why there's no disclosure. If there was a disclosure, where you're like, you sons of bitches could have helped us, and they're like, yeah, well, Bill gave you religion, and look what you guys did with that. We're still mad at you, Bill, and. You know, like the last religion we gave you, then you guys got too metaphysical. So we started with Buddhism and we tried this and then we tried that. And then like, we're really sorry for the Christian thing. And, you know, you don't, you don't know, like there are ways that they could be interacting where they're like, okay, and this is what I mean, collective human consciousness. How important is that? when you look at the remnant technologies, if we just table all the facts from engineered soil to giant piezoelectric connected buildings with like antenna things like the Nazca lines and the Bolivian Nazca lines and the stuff in Jordan, not giant geoglyphs. I don't care about the, okay. Every, I always say this as a disclosure, every moment of human history is important and interesting. I'm not being disparaging against every tribal indigenous, uh, people who decided to worship a broken laptop you know it's happening right now in the south pacific from world war ii von danigan loves to talk about the tribe that has made little mini fake airstrips and are have now deified some gis that were on the island and i mean there there are modern examples of this but i'm just saying that we need to look past that because we have a massive chapter of missing human history that involves a very that's a train just for everyone listening um I'm right on the tracks. And so the, the deal is you have uh, a large amount of high human technology. And so what happens is we get lost in these 
Sumerian and, and Hindi and uh, Eastern and Western, uh, just these digressions, and they're all super interesting, they're super important, but they're not our central core mystery. We are, Graham Hancock, you know, we're a species with amnesia. That's exactly it. And it means how far back can we start on the game of adult archeological clue and geological clue and say, how long have we been here? Well, Michael Cremo points out in Forbidden Archeology, span uh, we've been here, there have been anatomically correct humans that have blown away the paleoanthropological record uh, that we theorized, which is also like you said, what, what makes uh, academics do what they do. Some of it is absolutely hubris. Who wants to stand? My favorite analogy personally is the blinky bard. You may have heard me say you're the blinky bard. It's uh, for a thousand years, they bang on the blinky board. If you bang on the one side, you get orange. You bang on the other side, you get you get red. You have a whole ritual for a thousand years about the religious and and the and the super sacred blinky board, which is, i.e., uh, this is an analogy for every secret society who's ever found one half-assed piece of old technology or something that they think is important. I mean, if you drink out of a skull with sheep blood for a thousand years, it's a thing. I mean, who's you know, it's a thing. It's like you play darts every week, and it's a thing. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to play darts. You know, but here you are with um, a blinky board, and someone walks up and says. Why are you in the cockpit of a 747 hitting the control panel? That's a plane. You can fly it. And they're like, heretic, burn him. And the, the so what, what we have is people going, I'm kind of, well, they don't say they're woo-woo. They, you have the people who literally believe in crystals. Like they just believe in crystals. They don't have any logic or reasoning behind it. Literally, they just believe and then you have paranormal and you have all these branches of, of science of pseudo, what's going to be called pseudosciences or whatever, but they don't have any concrete, anything. They just, they just believe. Now what matters is that we are all very super complex, crazy, cool creatures that are still in safe mode on a very complex, incredible machine. Uh, the earth that we were once terraformed really quite well. And so the blinky board is a great analogy of uh, what you're really doing is you're getting a response. Uh, you hit the control board hard enough for it to blink orange or red, and you've been doing it a long time. So now you have now you have Tibetan Tomo. Now you have uh, a way to heat yourself, but you don't teach anyone that. But Wim Hof does. Wim Hof teaches you how to control your inflammatory response. Wim Hof says. Uh, literally, he says, fucking demystify. He goes, you, you want a prayer? Here's a fucking prayer. It's like five languages. And he goes, there's your fucking prayer. Ooh. He goes, he goes, he, and he says that there's t-shirts, fucking demystify. You can do this. I can do this. I listened to him over and over. I, I watched him. I was there. And it's the truth. We have forgotten how high tech you and I are reactivating these abilities is not a belief thing. It's just a reality of what we are. And, and that we're real, that the blinky board may, you may through your religious secret ceremony traditions, get a response from the, from the control board, but it's not because that's what the control board is supposed to do. It might even have an effect within the spectrum of you're trying to affect health. You're trying to have second sight. You're trying to do these things that we call all these paranormal activities and abilities. Or, or synesthesias or uh, pineal gland stuff. 
and and you might and you might have a reaction that is very what you're going to call spiritual or paranormal. You may reactivate it through drugs, uh, even in a more positive, you know, in a less a more healthy way. But at the end of the day, we're all banging on a blinky board that is, I think, a much more high tech um, machine. Yeah, I think so. And, 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 and so that's fine to relate to it that way. Just yeah. And I mean, I think it's, I, I talked to this Tibetan monk that told me that he knows lots of people who are, I was like, what do you mean lots of people? He's like, well, I know five or six people who are 300, 400, 500 years old. And I was like, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you know them? And he's like, well, so when they become 50, they go into a cave that's a hundred percent black, dark. You can't have, you can't have like not one particle of light on your skin and you have to stay for 21 days and then you come out and then it reverses your age until you're about 25 then you go back to 50 and then they do it every 50 years like that's just like and you do it till you're bored and you don't want to live anymore and i was like well do you, they do some sort of meditation or it's like no i think it's just about the complete absence of light it's not about uh anything else like you st could still eat you could still drink you could still go to the bathroom you don't have to meditate there's no special thing to it it's just you have to be in complete blackness the complete absolute darkness for 21 days was he drunk or you drunk when he told you that he could have been drunk i don't know no i mean like i don't know <laughs> like, let's see if know. she'll do it I'm let's see saying, if she'll like, do the it this is like we don't know what the what we're capable no no we don't we don't i yeah, i know i haven't gone i don't know anybody who's gone 21 days in a complete with no light like, yeah. uh i i know there's that booth here in minnesota at the u that eliminates so much sound the longest anyone stayed in there is 45 minutes because you can hear your own heartbeat and all the sounds inside your body oh, um wow. it, because there's there is no external white noise none zero no wind nothing they take it all out so you found find yourself to be super loud i guess uh incredibly loud literally you can hear your heartbeats your breathing it's so terrifying to most people some people last a few seconds some people last a couple minutes a lot of people last in the few minute range they they, they don't go there's no going to 30 or 45 minutes that's not a thing it's apparently people freak the hell out and I have to get out sensory deprivation tanks uh no i've never done that it's uh i i it, if you have any cuts or anything on your body, it stings. It's like really, I mean, like your cuticles will like sting in the water. It's interesting. It's, but yeah, I've done. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to like the whole living forever thing or the living extended periods. Like there was, I was fascinated about that Chinese monk uh, that they had said, he said they, they had IDs of him again at the turn of the century and that he was like, recorded to be six or 700 years old. Uh, and so there was the same deal where he, he reached that point where I guess he had lived long enough or whatever. And he did it by living off of an herbal remedy, an herbal combination. I haven't thought about him in a long time because that wasn't a focus of, I do think that there, I do think that I do look at mummification as kind of a, imagine a worldwide system that's connected uh, that allows you and I, as we travel through the solar system and we, um, we have different experiences. You're sick. Uh, you're sick. Like with a cold, I have cancer and it's developed because despite our entire worldwide 
tuning frequency, energy machines, pyramids, systems, whatever, uh, the whole atmosphere still couldn't filter out a particular storm that we traveled through that was in a particular part of the galaxy. And because we're spinning, the earth is spinning, the galaxy is spinning, and we go through and it makes me have cancer and it makes you really irritated or maybe sick with a cold. Well, we go to that, what we thought was a Greek Roman amphitheater. And it's not about that we can hear someone speak for a play. It's about delivering the sounds and frequencies necessary for you to be cured from your cold and me to be cured from my cancer. And then uh, we're back to 100%. But if this entire worldwide frequency energy system was to fall apart, what if at the beginning there were machines that still worked and they're like, look, we can only handle one person at a time and we can always bring you back. But first it was freezers and coolers. And what if it eventually turned into mummifying people or out of a on an indigenous uh, society was mimicking uh, so the waiting like in line. Like the mummies are cryogenically frozen in their way. Right. They were, they were waiting to have their turn and the healing machine that's at the center of the, you know, the, the sarcophagus. Oh, I like that. That's interesting. I like that one. Yeah. So, so those are the technologies that we don't, we imagine it to a point, but we're so I bring up the blinky board for people to really stop like Wim Hof said, stop mystifying the technologies. Well, and, to and you also have this really good point in your in your book about, you know, like if we, if, if somebody came to a nuclear, the inside of a nuclear waste <laughs> thing a thousand years from now, it would have moss and everything. It would look like some sort of amazing temple. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, but yeah, I did include the, uh, I'm apologizing preemptively. I included that picture of people at the, at the solstice at uh, Stonehenge oh. wearing flower wreaths and stuff. And I'm like, you people look ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's great. You believe, and again, there's Druids, there's witches, there's good people and bad people and good societies and bad. And for a couple thousand years, they've been playing grownups. And so for a thousand years, if you do something, it's a tradition. But if you do yoga for a thousand years on Chernobyl, and you feel tingly, it might still be nuclear, or it could be that you're still sitting and doing yoga on an old, you know, nuclear factory. That's all it was. But now you think it's this special place for the solstices and, and, and it may have been for a thousand years or 500 years, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't a nuclear reactor. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a factory. It doesn't mean that these standing stones that are found all over the earth aren't actually likely probably just oh structural supports to large buildings that no longer exist and and that and and so therein lies the blurred line so it's i think wim hof says it best when he says really he puts the emphasis on effing demystifying you have to because we are not looking at all we're archaeologists need to be paid to fail they need to be paid not to find what is in the narrative of their of their of their degree they need to be like hey i just found something that doesn't line up and i've heard personally from many archaeologists well if i find this i'm not going to get funded or if okay. i there's so many that have lost their careers because of yeah you know, be clovis stuff or you know there you go i think the, the clovis thing is finally dying it's such a joke yeah. um but it killed uh, a my, lot of careers in the yeah shame on all of them we should honestly hunt them down i mean it's, it's just <laughs> I also kind of find that um, this whole structure where the only way things are really funded is through universities, that kind of- Oh, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like maybe this alternative community, we need to start funding each other for, 
Jennifer Diggs. And Funny like, you should bring that up, right? So Jennifer must have talked to you about what we're doing, not just with America's Stonehenge, which uh, Dennis has been generous enough to include me and then Jennifer, of course, into doing some work that we're going to do there. But we are planning an archaeological dig for South America. Oh, yeah, she mentioned the Pumapunku area. It, and that's exactly to prove out that the complexities of these structures, no one's ever looked at the foundations. I'm the first person. Up, I never wanted to be the first. I'm not, I can't even say it. Like I don't even, like how I just said it. No one's bothered to look at the foundations. They're like, where's the mummy? Where's the gold? Where's the jewels? Where's the pottery? I got that's 30 years. I'm going to put this like, pot back instance, together. Easter Island. Like, we didn't Forget even that it's a pot at the, pottery. yeah. I mean, you have polygonal, again, cymatic polygonal blocks on Easter Island. And if you're going to spend 30 years, look, every bit of our history is important. No, that one blows my mind. Uh, you're not digging deeper because, well, nothing's going to be there. F you sideways. I mean, yeah. seriously, the, the you call yourself an academic institution, yet none of you have tested the Paracas. You're joke. Straight up degree in jokeology. You know that the practice exists. You know that there's soft tissue. They are the oldest people on earth. And it's not just the practice. There's elongated skulls all over the world. And I'm calling out, I thank God I didn't waste my time finishing. I, I don't want to be, I like what Carl Erberger said, the, the archaeo priest, he calls them archaeo priests, the religion of, arche, I call it the religion of archaeology. Um, and it's not the archaeologists. It's, it's this institutionalized uh, religion of science. Science is supposed to be science. It's not about belief. It's just show me your data and sharing uh, failure. We're still going to learn things. And right now it's okay. Well, I guess we have to be privately funded. We have to use scientific techniques to do the work, but if we're going to rely on an academic institution to do anything that's remotely ground cutting a groundbreaking, literally haha, here all week and to, to do anything with their billions of dollars that would actually forward science into a new millennium. It's no, they're not going to do it. They're too stuck in an armchair response of, I don't really want one more person to write another article about something they've already written about so that they can all pat each other on the back and, 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 Oh yeah, that was a good article. Oh, I, you wrote a good article too. It's like one giant mental metaphysical right that they jerk. publish in nature magazine it's not even readable oh. and like seven people actually they they circle jerk each other like there's not yeah yeah no i'm all thank god you said it too because i was like oh man i'm getting too angry i just <laughs> i i'm at that point look we're all your listeners and everyone who's been listening it's like we're six degrees from everyone the reality is that it's a joke uh i would love to hear I dare you, I dare any of you to pick up the Paracas and start doing the paleoanthropological and biological, paleobiological work that would test the Paracas and that genealogy. That genealogy is, it's ludicrous, the story we tell ourselves. And I, and I throw it out, okay, so here's a positive for you stupid institutions with a lot of people's money. Here's how it works. Vegas did not want to teach people how to gamble. Their theory was that if you taught people how to gamble, more people would cheat. So I got really into Vegas in the early 2000s and watched every history episode I could on Vegas, its history, and you name it. And one of the things that they did was they started teaching people how to play craps and how to play roulette because I wasn't going to. I'm like, how the hell do you do this? How do all these people know how to do this? How is this even done? Well, 
they've, they realized that after they taught people how to gamble, that when people didn't feel stupid and they didn't know, they knew what they were doing, they were willing to risk money and therefore gamble because they didn't feel stupid. So suddenly they got more money. They got more money because people could participate because they taught people how to play. So instead of losing money, they ended up making more money. So I feel academic institutions are in the same boat. It's like, don't feel stupid that you have millions of artifacts in your basement, more than likely shit you stole, but let's just assume that you didn't, whatever. The point is, is that you guys have, why not put out there that you're the first institute to uncover 10,000 facts about the past that didn't even know existed. You want people banging on your door to get a degree from you? Stop being an archaic Victorian, didn't like it when women voted joke. You know, these are institutions that say they're uh, supposed to be at the, I mean, they're not at the forefront. That's why we have technical colleges. That's why we have for-profit universities. They're not at the front. Michael Dell, dropout. Bill Gates, dropout. If you're super- Like all of them. Yeah, if you're a super successful person, you didn't do it because you became a sheep in a four-year institution. And then if you do get successful, what a joke. They give you an honorary degree. I'm not going to say no, but what the hell, folks? I mean, that should tell you something. And then and then there's this like little pocket club game where like, we're not even going to look at your resume unless you have a degree. Why? Because I can do the job you couldn't because you didn't get blessed by the institution. Anyway, that could be a whole nother show. Yeah. So for now... Uh, the, the issue is that you could be the institution that not only tables facts that no one else tabled, it would drive not only enrollment, people would bend over backwards if you were an institution that's going to say, hey, to call, we're, we're sending down 1,000 archaeologists to clear this temple in the period of one season. Or, you know, and one season is going to be 18 months. Oh, and you have to pay us to come down and do it, you know, or something. You know, all I'm saying is, is that they are very short-sighted. They would have 100% collegiate enrollment if they actually doubled down on the true reality of what's going on. I mean, and when you look at Teotihuacan, you have a site in Mexico that looks like a circuit grid. It looks like that's the other thing. A lot of these monuments are laid out. The oldest ones are laid out very circuitry-ish. Mm -hmm. just yeah, a hint you show some really cool comparison photos in your book which is great yeah and so here we are with a site that if you you can look at um the plate photography from the 1870s where they're like we think this is a pyramid thing and they it looks like a pile of dirt it took them 99 years to uncover what you can now go tour they're not remotely done and to your point about layers they're not going past layers like the Clovis is a joke. And the people who perpetuate it, it's like a number of other fake things right now. But what we got to do is dig all the way down, explore a site for what it is, not be afraid of the facts that are found. It would produce more television. It would produce more books. It would produce more enrollment. Uh, there is literally nothing less than a greed. I will appeal to your massive institutional stupidity and greed. More people will enroll if you would open this field up than for you to maintain that there is yeah. no one behind the green and, curtain. I mean, the other thing is there's like, there's this whole notion that we found everything and that that is so <laughs> not true. There's so much to be found. And hey, we found you, tag. I mean, <laughs> there was already people here. And, and well, and now here's the other problem is that this is a delicate subject. 
indigenous peoples that are like, hey, we've always been here. Well, you too came from somewhere. So if we have anatomically correct humans in the Red Crag and in Table Mountain and in all over the earth, uh, that there's indications that the paleoanthropological history says, hey, we are not, you can't just base yourself on morphology. I get it. Like, well, we can't get DNA out of this yet. Well, it's likely you have a baboon bone and it's also likely you found it in an open riverbed, but this in situ find over here says that that's an anatomically correct human part and it's in a 5 million year old you know, layer of earth. And then there's other one over here is 60 million. You know what so, I'm doing next week, uh, two weeks from now, I'm going to, um, I'm in Dallas and I'm going to Glen Rose cause there is a, I, I belong to this paleo uh, club and uh, they're so in, nice and nerdy. It's yeah, I'm, I belong to geology clubs. I'm in like three now anyway, but like yeah. uh, a rock hunter uh, anyway. Uh, they, you know, they have found like dinosaur footprints and human footprints. Yeah. Same thing. Well, they found yeah. just within the last six weeks, they found like this, it's, it's game changing. It's like this huge shelf of all dinosaurs and footprints. It hasn't been published yet, but like, Oh so, my gosh, where take pictures, send me pictures. Yeah, Let's Glenn talk Rose, about it. Glenn Rose. Yeah. Like, okay, I, I will. Um, I'll, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm organizing a field trip with how my- did we not start with this? Anything <laughs> that pushes back human history. Uh, this is it. Uh, I still want to get back because they like they have found the footprints there before but people look it off as like an anomaly like oh whatever well maybe maybe the mud then got mushy again like millions of years later (laughs) and then they walked over you know like that's the kind of stuff they say somebody says that yeah like I've actually heard that theory they were like well see what happened was that there's the dinosaur footprints and then um a couple million years later they got they were in a creek bread they got they got um to a point where they were mushy again activated walked on it and then it yeah that's the theory yeah so anyway which brings us back to to call and you having this background i want to know yeah yeah so now so no 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 so you're gonna go visit this next week where is it glenn rose texas yeah glenn rose texas uh what do you what what did you find at Tikal as far as the details of we got off on the granite and the specifics? I'll of send how you some pictures. Is. Actually, I'll send you some of the pictures of the stuff that I took because I mean I was I was into megaliths at the time, so I took I took you know I took five or six hundred pictures. Also, uh, I I found what was really interesting is the guide was telling us that whenever they clear forest in that area, it's uh, the soil they can't regrow anything. So she was yeah, like, it's considered a wet desert. That's the thing about Brazil is that they said that it was, oh, you can't grow things here. And then they start finding terra preta. And, and there's another technique called slash and burn. And there are some uh, primitive techniques that are used. So this is terra preta is not the primitive slash and burn or create your own compost. Uh, it was considered a wet desert that nah, this is ungrowable. And that's the other awkward thing about uh, that, you know, save the rainforest. And yet, Every time they clear a spot, there's like a ruin of an earthwork or a giant like pictograph. And it's like, uh, ooh, it looks like this was already occupied. Right. And and so not virgin ground. And so here you are with the same thing coming up over and over again. But at the same time. And then the like concept said, that perhaps the Amazon is planted. Uh, right. Back to terraforming the earth. 
back to, I think trees, I, I reference a scientific paper that from a seismic metamaterial standpoint, which means the science behind uh, earthquake management, building construction would also include external objects like trees, soil, sifted soil, plugged soil with like random holes that to control uh, the effects of earthquakes and to create safe zones, but to, but to really manage um, that kind of disaster, there's a lot of techniques right down to nano-sized objects all the way up to things like Hyperion, like a 60 foot, a 60 diameter, 380 foot tree, that if you were to plant everything in a particular way, you would be able to create a very safe area for buildings and people and other things. So the reality is that we have a very rando idea of, oh, nature. There's no playbook for everyone out there who keeps listening. It's like those stupid Georgia Guidestones. Uh, there should only be in the future doves and birds and love. There should only be 500 million people. Who the hell told you that there should be yeah. 500 million people? You the idiot. capacity of this planet. Uh, yeah, again, put everybody, it's like, that is such an ignorant, dangerous, because then there happens to be some diabolical James Bond type bad guys on the yep. planet who are like, I could go with 30% less people on the planet. That sounds great. Now, I can't argue with some of the people who are still uh, burning people at the stake for their sexual preference, uh, uh, mutilating girls in Africa. I could think of a number of people that I would be happy if they weren't here because it's not the middle ages and you shouldn't be generally mutilating. That's a big thing for me. I hate that. I hate that uh, you marry into the wrong tribe. The idea that we are literally living in the dark ages still, that's gotta be over. I mean, you don't have to carry an Android or cell phone of some kind, but honest to God, the people who are practicing some of these utter barbaric, inhumane, unhuman practices, they need to be done. But does that mean you should automatically eliminate mm, 2 billion people because you think the planet should have less? Disgusting, gross. You, yeah. I'm reminding you all out there, at 15% plus consciousness or minus, and not to mention genetically, we're all differently and the use of that 15% may look very different between Einstein and us or whatever. At the same time, collective human consciousness requires RAM. So the person that you're devaluing that lives in a forest that you think, well, yeah, so they know how to make some medicinal meds, but look at modern society. They're worthless. I don't think that's true. I think that the reason we're not just coming up with corkscrew, unflyable uh, planes that look like something from the Renaissance and the reason we're coming up with graphene conductors is not just a history and a build of uh, already papered and published science. It's also the intuition that comes with a collective you human, think the, the power. The more people, the more collective RAM yep. is for yep. society to grow into this. Okay. Yep. I like that. Yeah. So that means you really have to look at valuing people in a way that they have. And again, that there is science behind collective human consciousness. There is science, but it always gets, and again, part of it is our upbringing. Part of it is our upbringing into the, even the world of science. We look at it, we look at it as an individual. Uh, when we say society, it's really easy to think, oh yeah, like, everything that's between me and Barnes and Noble and Starbucks, that's society. Or, you know, we think, oh, it's between my viewing, it's between the shows I do watch and the shows I don't watch online. It's between the books I read and the books I don't read. It's between the type of exercise I do and the type of hiking someone else does. We always look at it personally. And then when we think, oh yeah, paranormal, ghosts, uh, past lives, 
it's all we, and if it's a past life, it's your past life. No. What if it's a collective consciousness rammed yeah. past life? I talked to a Lakota a elder yesterday and she was talking about blood memory. She was like, oh, I'm really good. I'm really, I'm really happy that like I was taught from an early age how to access my blood memory. And I That's was so like, interesting. Wait, what? What do you mean you can access your blood memory? And she was like, well, we, oh, we, we have memory in our blood. All of us do. You do too. 100%. 100%. I mean, it's. I, I try to tell people that when you tap in, there's also that Aurora, like the Karelian photography, there's an Aurora around us. There is a, a concept that everything that makes up your memory and who you are is actually also stored not only in the collective RAM, but around you, that it's not just in your brain or in your body. That Yeah, I mean, like I've looked into the whole, what's that guy, uh, the morphic field, the um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake. I don't know if you've ever looked into any of his stuff with, but like- No, but there, there's another guy, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Olav likes to talk about him, but his that was his whole theory. The the collective consciousness is also a store, storing, store, a memory bed for your own storage system. Yeah, it's like, uh, the, it's like the hard drive and we're, you know, we're working yeah. on the desktop here. So do you, do you, uh, like, uh, have you ever done psychedelics? Uh, no. So I grew up, I, at a very young age, I almost died of a nut allergy. I almost died when I was three and a half, four. I was at a party and I was eating nuts. My parents didn't know. It was in an age where we risked children's lives. And so I go into shock. They give me two shots of an adult dose of adrenaline at the emergency room. And they're like, your son's allergic to stuff. And then it comes to find out that they're like, well, he's allergic to life. And I'm not the boy in the bubble, but then it was, my mom has a background in biology and chemistry. And she's like, I'm not going to give him shots. He'll be fine. He'll grow out of it. So we didn't have pets for a really long time. Uh, got a dog eventually when I was like 15, uh, 16. But then you know, it's supposed to have no curtains. It was supposed to be blinds because they're easier to clean hardwood floors and carpets. And then they're like, you're also allergic to alcohol, which is ironic because I'm Irish, very Irish, a lot of Irish, a little French, That's but Murphy, Irish. yeah, Murphy, O'Davern, and then a little, you know. So then, uh, of course, I'm 14 now and I'm at my first big redneck party because I grew up in a very practical, you know, America, capital M sort of neighborhood. And I'm at my first field house party, which is basically for some people a barn, but we call them field houses because it was a, it was a field house. It was made out of metal. It was like, you know, and there was beer and I am like, I'm going to do what every 14 year old slash teen does is I'm going to participate. I had two ounces and I had the worst sore throat in about 30 seconds. So at 14, I think, oh, uh, I'm really allergic to alcohol. So then I go on to become a bartender. I never drank anything that I had, uh, was mixing yet. Apparently I was a really good drink mixer. And then eventually uh, I got told by a doctor, you know, you're probably allergic to the yeast or something in beer. You could probably drink all the hard liquor you want. But by then I'm 22 and I have no peer pressure. So I don't drink. And my grandfather smoked five packs a day. So on the other side, they're like, have you ever smoked anything? And I'm like, are you crazy? My sinuses would be completely stuffed. My uh, so I never smoked anything, never did anything. They're like, dude, have you tried drugs? And I'm like, dude, nuts kill me. No, and yeah. I'm not doing that. And so I stayed away from everything. And then uh, I went paleo a few years ago. And it doesn't mean that I think we're all food addicts. I mean, we all are. We're, we have such an, un, all of us have such a misunderstanding of what, you know, like if we were a Ferrari, we're you just don't so take. We're disconnected from our food source. Yeah. 
really are. Yeah. What it is and what it's for, we're so not where we should be. But when I went paleo, my allergies went away. So I'm not telling you to be paleo is a lifestyle. It's not a diet. And when, and it's not all about meat because ironically I'm allergic to nuts. So it's really funny. I'm not a huge meat eater and I'm not, and I can't eat nuts, which, you know, macadamia nuts are a superfood. Almonds are a superfood and I cannot eat either. So here we are with um, my allergies, 100% morning allergies, hangriness, all that goes away when you, uh, eat more in a better way for yourself. It doesn't mean you don't eat fun stuff or drink cool stuff. It's just that, you know, once I cut the sugar down, it's about my total carb sugar intake is supposed to be around 30. It's about 27 to 35 grams a day. But then uh, that changed a lot of things for me. And then, you know, what I think as far as the psychedelic program goes, I've studied like Graham Hancock and new earth lady, I've studied, I mean, she's done like, I think at the time I was studying, the last thing she had said was 157 trips, ayahuasca trips, uh, Graham Hancock's work. And I've looked at it intensely. And it is interesting to me that it seems that people who do it make a point to say, hey, if you do it, you can't access those realms without it again. Is that you have to keep doing it naturally. But if you don't, once you ask access it one way, you can't get back there on your own. It's kind of like uh, weightlifters. If we decided to do steroids, I haven't found that to be true. I found like it showed me the way to get there, and that. All right, see, that's fascinating. I've, I have only done. Um, I I'm not a big drug person in general, and I or or of course alcohol. she's not not for anyone listening. She's never done this. This is yeah, just a but, dream. But uh, first time I did mushrooms, I was uh, 35. And I, uh, I had never done anything. Oh, wow. Time travel. You mean like in seven years from now? <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm 38 now, but anyway, so it was like, uh, I, I, um, I, I don't know. We were, we were seven people. We were in the Redwood forest and they were giving out bags and like, um, they were giving, passing out peanut butter. There was like seven of us and our sitter, like the guy who was going to be sober was just passing everybody a spoonful of peanut butter to take with their mushrooms. And so I ate one mushroom before he got around to me. I was the last one. And I was like, oh, it's not that bad. So then I just ate all of them. I ate my whole bag of mushrooms. And I think it was like, uh, you know, I don't was, think that's called a micro dose. Nope. Yeah. It was like nine or 12 mushrooms. It was a heroic dose. And I had a heroic ego death and it was, <laughs> both the worst and the best thing I've ever experienced in my life. But, uh, I, yeah. So like, um, what and, happened? Oh, I, like I went to, um, first of all, I started seeing fairies and like gnomes and all kinds of shit coming out of the floor. I have a whole video on it, but then, um, uh, <laughs> then I, the fairies told me to go back to my, I had to be away from everybody. I went back to my tent and then I died. I like left my body and I got to look at my body and I went out at the Redwood Forest. I, I, I went, once I got past the moon, everything digitized. It wasn't real. It all digitized. And then I was like, I was back with, and I don't like the word God because it sounds like a person. And I don't like the word heaven because that sounds like a place. It was electricity. I was back with the electric source of whatever senses or something, or at least within my own mind's eye, that felt like it. And I had this pull within like my own energy kept on trying to, to pull me out and say like, no, not yet, not yet. You yeah. And I was like, why not? It's fucking not even real. I don't want to go. I didn't know I was a girl. I didn't know I was Nikki. I didn't know I was human. I had no idea. And I felt like I was there longer than I've been alive here. And anyway, the one thing that 
I took away, well, I cut, I cut out a couple of things. Like when I came back, I've always been able to hear electricity. Now I can hear people's electricity in their body. And that's never gone away. That's just like stayed with me since then. And I know it's there because it's like, it's like a running refrigerator, you know, like I can like get next oh. to person and I can hear their, uh, so that never went away. But then also, um, uh i had this this concept that it was like the the source energy of everything doesn't even know the why of why it exists so it fragmented itself into infinite amount of possibilities in order to try to understand itself better so like that's the kind of reasoning that i took away as to why there's existence at all that's super cool i i found that of the of the you know, because it is kind of an astronaut sort of thing to do, to do the work that you're doing. I think it's, I'm all for people trying it. See, I'm actually not for all people trying it though, because I know very few people that could have integrated that. Not that I'm not tooting my own horn saying I'm good or bad, but I'm just saying that there's so many people that have so many issues and that's what it's going to fucking come up for you. It's, 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 it's very... You know, I uh, like people, people get into some very weird psychological places and they come back and they are not okay sometimes. So I, yeah. you know, I don't think it's for everybody. <laughs> if you're called to do no, it. No, I, and yeah, because I do think that it's like my description is I said, well, from my impression and study, I believe it's a lot like deciding, hey, uh, let's take steroids and we're both going to have this physical response in our body and be this kind of a weightlifter in six months. And it's like, there are penalties to pay for that. And yeah. mentally, I don't want a smaller mental penis or for instance, <laughs> right, you know, right. I, but, but it could be much worse. And I know I'm making light of it, but the reality is that there does seem to be a re repercussions that are frequently unexpected. Uh, it's not the only horror story. There are definitely, experiments that I think are best left through, um, again, positive gene expression. It's not a new term, but what you eat, uh, how you meditate, like having not a woo-woo meditation where you're like waiting for your cloud problems to float away, never gonna work for me. But like the Wim Hof stuff, the cold showers, you by the way, as you learn how to do it, you're doing the meditation in the cold. It's quite a trippy thing. Yeah. And that electronic, that electric field thing is right there. I think you're, I think you'd be a good candidate to, I, and by the way, when I had to take my first cold shower for 30 seconds, that was painful. I hate it. I walk around now at 20 below zero. I wear sandals like in it's Minnesota. It's cold. Not now. Now it's like super warm. It's 60 today now, but I, it's not about just getting used to it. It's about uh, doing it also in the heat. Wim Hof has done it in both. He did 50 miles in the desert and controlled his inflammatory response, his heating and cooling. And he did it with, I mean, don't try to do what he did if you can go look up what he did, but he did repeat the experiment with no water and 50 miles in the desert. And that's pretty trippy. But I, I do think mentally, if you don't build yourself into that complex those dynamics between this plane and whatever other plane there is, astral planing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I do think that you can build your way there naturally. I just think it's a much longer 
I have no idea what that looks like because I don't think I'm any expert or I don't think I'm there. I think I understand the bones of it. And I think I'm doing my own experiments and I think I'm happy with my results and I want better and more results. But because of like mushrooms, I'm allergic literally to mushrooms. So I don't bring up everything. I don't really think I'm allergic to that many things, but if I make the list, it gets big. And it's just mushrooms and nuts, tree nuts, uh, not, and they're like, does that mean peanuts? It's like, no, peanuts are not a nut. Why are they called peanuts? But they're not a nut. Well, I did ayahuasca in Colombia, and it is very um, gentle compared to my mushroom trip. Mushrooms was like, good god and, and okay. I, yeah uh yeah but you weren't supposed to eat the whole bag that's true but i even then like <laughs> recently in december I, for the second time ever doing mushrooms i did i did mushrooms and i did uh just three grams which was supposed to be like a very normal dose had another ego death and that was uh so i kind of think mushrooms might be like my thing that takes me out of this universe so i don't and I, at that, that time I decided like, I think I'm good. I think I've, I think I'm happy done being enough. back here. I think I'm done. I think, I, I think I've experienced what I wanted to experience with uh, the psychedelics. I, I, I like that you're constantly having ego deaths too. It's like, Hey, my ego's no, back. I've yeah. just had two. I've just had two ego deaths, but uh, they were both on mushrooms and, and they were crazy though. But um, <laughs> on ayahuasca, it was more just like, I got to see the energetic webbing of the ether like the air that oh, that's interesting I see the energetic webbing of uh, my body and then i could see how it was connected in the thickness of it in the in the air and then on to other people it was that was a that was an interesting um you understand plant consciousness so like you basically understand how they perceive time so that's sort of what i felt so i i got to i felt like i was in the perspective of breathing like a plant breathes and experience yeah. like fractals the way they do so i don't know those things are valuable That's... for people i really do think they are not don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with them but i think people need to do them responsibly and they need to uh yeah have somebody it really helps not doing it by yourself in the middle of the woods on too many it really helps when you have like an actual shit yeah person who knows what the hell they're doing yeah and this is where again it's not that it might not be uh the actual experience may not be incredible it is incredibly important and valuable this is what i mean about the blinky board you know we're 10 to 15 percent conscious of beings that exhibit abilities from synesthesia to the wim hof stuff where i think we are banging on the blinky board and we're getting a response right. it's a very amazing response but i think we're getting a very disconnected uh, un, you know, there's no def way to define the response to what it really is because we've deified it. Well, how and I do think we the, figure out how to fly the plane? Right, exactly. And so I don't think it's the guy dancing around it in the grass skirt that doesn't know that it's not a plane. So the part of the problem is, is that you have dynastic peoples creating religions and mystifying and traditions and deifying techniques that were once very advanced um, connections and technologies that are part of the cellular and the human body, where now it's like, it's very easy to slip into a psychedelic conversation and say, oh, you know, make sure you have a shaman. And, and if anyone, even the expert binky blinky board banger shaman. it has to be somebody that can see when you're going off to like never never land they can yeah. pull you back down to reality yeah and let you know hey this is gonna yeah. 
going to be okay. Like that's what you need. That yeah. you not do it alone. Yeah. That doesn't have to be a shaman, but yeah. you have to have somebody who can like medical professionals need to be standing by. Yeah. I, I, I do think that that's a, I do think it's valuable. I do think it's important, but I think that the, 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 that road to us really understanding how that connects to this entire system. I do think that those were spaces that we didn't have to use psychedelics at one point. I think it was something yeah, we were, when I, you talked about the, yeah. So like that, I, I'm a big essential oil person. I'm into, I make my own, um, uh, all sorts of lotions and creams and Ooh. yeah, I do all that. I have my own little apothecary that I've been working on for years and I, I work with into that. That sounds awesome. I have a friend. Oh, it's super fun. Yeah. Yeah. The essential oil program. I, what I was getting to is, is that the, 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 the capstone of vibrational medicine and we'll have no time to get into it, but for everyone out there to just like teaser is imagine a day where we didn't have to eat anything in particular imagine just literally through the ground, the way you're connected, the vibrational energy. And I don't mean woo woo. I mean, literally, instead of having to extract and burn 10 tons of a particular uh, plant that you wanted aloe vera out of, what if the very essences of on the, on the microbial level that the very smells, the very uh, terraformed volumes of it on the planet, the way you walked and moved, there was enough within the system that what is a tincture or what is a uh, homeopathic remedy. Uh, the, the one thing that they noticed in the late 1700s when the German scientist that was developing like for like for uh, cure likes, you know, the like for like deal, the whole concept of how you dilute down a remedy. And it seemed like the most diluted where it was almost just an echo of the original plant was the most powerful. What if we were at a point where we were so tuned in that just being in the presence of those plants, you didn't have to kill them or burn them. It was just their vibrational energy. And it was just your presence was all that was needed. And that that energy transfer was there without, and it was because we had fully activated pineal glands. It was because we were hundred percent conscious that it wasn't just a uh, etheric uh, out of body surrealism, but it, very grounded, very physiologically. It, we were quite aware of just being in this presence and walking on this path and being with these people and that energy system was in full harmony and connected to where and did like, you know, we could walk by an aloe vera plant if we didn't need it, but the melaleuca was working just fine. The tea tree was great, but we didn't, we didn't have to extract it by destruction. We yeah. Almost we like could, we were breatharians or something could have been. Oh yeah. There we go. That's exactly it. This whole thing was leading to you saying that. <laughs> well, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it's so funny because these are, again, they're all, echoes of i think truths where we have um again we've we keep banging on the blinky board and things work but we're not stepping fully back and going well why is this thing an astral plane thing why is this a homeopathic thing why is this a uh why why is this why, thing over here just strictly a placebo but my thing is like why i i do feel like we are a species with amnesia 100 percent. but then uh, but like like in a way that's almost cruel in a way like even if we did go through yes. this massive deluge and um or a cat a, a, a series of them over million, million yeah. thousand years you would think like like somebody would have been like hey here's a manual or but the, i mean <laughs> the manuals they gave you to your instrumentation is just like here's how no. you make bread yep 
Yeah, yeah. They get you know you have Veracocha. You have a red bearded, red headed dude showing up and going, "Hey, here's how you plant stuff. Here's some basic language stuff. Here's some math." Uh, you know, two plus two bushels makes four. You need 20 this season. And this is when your season starts and you should get to it. Next, it's almost like you can say a high-tech culture ran around the planet and got a lot of people that were really just nomadic people to get back into the farming program, get back into the um, sedentary uh, we need you guys to settle down. And then that other tribe will, they're running around killing people, but they'll stop when they figure out farming. So you guys figure out the farming warring tribe will take over you guys. But now we got 20 million uh, nomads settled down over here. We got a hundred million nomads on this continent settled down over there. And it was almost like a way of, of managing the masses. It was like, look, we can pull a Lord of the Ring, uh, King's Keep sort of thing, or we can get these hordes to settle down a little and we don't need to hit all of them. So kind of like an ancient high-tech alien Peace Corps, they come out of the uh, their bunkers and they're like, well, we can live on the surface. These people are too dumb, too backwards to get what we are, where we are. We can't help them all. We have to recollect a lot of old technology. I mean, were they underground? Were they just underground for hundreds of years, thousands of years? Uh, was it just uh, a fifty, or like one and a half generations? And then is the echo? I don't like the idea, the mythology behind Atlantis, but the recot structure. I think Jimmy from Bright Insight, his work is dead on. The recot structure does look like the the Eye of Africa was yeah, Atlantis. I like that video. That was I, really yeah and i just think that maybe we use it as an example to say just like those nuremberg uh spaceship battles and just like the references in the vedas what if atlantis really is the last post younger dryas location that an advanced human race chose to live in the open what if that recot structure was the last remnant of yeah hey look Veracocha is heading out to South America got to teach them corn uh got to you know like so like a hundred representatives out of what a thousand ten thousand a hundred thousand how many people would live in the structure who knows I mean how many were left and how many decided to live and if they were even one society it's like well this society's come back to the surface this other society uh again high-tech humans that control genomes they're like nah let's stay underground um we can so we have high technology underground at do you think they're in the oceans uh, i definitely think ocean locations are no-brainers uh any anywhere you've seen witness accounts so we have the japanese bermuda triangle uh the the uh dragon triangle we have the we have the bermuda triangle we have the weird one in north and the arctic or alaska ish and antarctica the reality is we have weird anomalies we have the eye of argentina or the uh, you know the the weird floating granite structures that i mean there's a number of things that look like the planet was very uniquely terraformed and used energy fields and ley lines in a very real pragmatic way but then at the same time i bring up hyperion in my book uh it, they found it in 2008 it's a 380 foot tree how do you not notice that it didn't get noticed, at least by modern or modern loggers or anyone. And then you have 1.57 to 1.3 million penguins on the danger islands that, you know, we love penguins. We've all seen the documentaries, yet 
there's a super colony that no one noticed that they're they're in their black and whites they're on the surface they're not tiny penguins but there's no one noticed 1.3 million super colony yeah so how hard is it for a high-tech human that can fly apparently according from video of the tic tac you know how hard is that to hide how hard is that to not be seen how hard is that to show up my favorite is rick and morty and his battery i don't know if you're a rick and morty fan i know i'm not are you a rick and morty fan I know I've never watched it, but I need to watch it. Cause I, everybody oh, in the world well, tells me I need to watch it. So yeah. Oh, you got to watch All right. in order uh, next to letter Kenny. And I think letter Kenny is everyone's like, I think letter Kenny's funnier than Rick and Morty. And that's a tough thing to say. Cause they're really like two different things. It's like having a world with two Coca-Colas and I, anyway, so <laughs> here it is. Uh, Rick is his spaceship won't take off because he has a battery that's really a micro universe. He actually put a universe inside of a battery. So it's an infinite universe that really what they're doing is they think Rick is a God, but in reality, all they do is make electricity for him to run his car. <laughs> and, and, and so Rick and Morty, his grandson go in and he says, here, here, here's these, uh, uh, here, here are these antenna with some uh, little balls on the end. You need, you need to look alien. We, we're aliens. And so you have all these people creating these dialogues about Palladians and grays and whites and, and, oh my gosh, they have all these stories. And it's like, it, it, you're so easy to assume that they're from somewhere else and that it's not a divergent human society that hates each other's guts. One decided to come to the surface, one stayed underground. Maybe one was just off world and just says, Look, F, you know, it's like it's your fault the last catastrophe happened. It's your fault. You know, the ha- the the you know that Hatfields and McCoys. You know, this is yep. like a a bizarre. Well, you know, uh, there's also the concept of you know, like most people live inside their homes, not on top of their homes, and we are on a planet, and it seems like the safest place to be would be, you know, you don't have to worry about solar flashes or, um, yeah. you know, whatever asteroids or whatever yeah yeah you would naturally don't get hit by a meteor if you're underground yeah Uh, you know not that maybe there was a time period where they were flying through masses that it was more common to get hit by something but i i don't think that building megalithically it wasn't just that they were moving large blocks things that should get in people's heads as we you know as we're getting where we are is think about the technologies it takes to identify the stones cut the stones, the actual machinery, and then the machinery itself has technology, and then the shapes of the blocks. And what, and and again, finishing materials are gone. Stop looking at stuff with lean-tos. Stop looking at a, they could cut very complex blocks, but, you know, they had log ceilings and lean-tos. That's just disproportionate to the level of technology right down to the engineered soil it is disproportionate to the society that would build and move thousands or hundreds of miles and not just that, but, you know, two miles in the air from like sea level to 13,000 feet in the air, like Lake Titicaca. We're talking about a society that's using equipment and moving throughout the planet on a global society that the last thing I'll say has nothing less than a significant amount of ruins that are underwater. We are telling ourselves a fraction of the play of humanity if we aren't willing to once make as difficult as it is, marine time archaeology, 
a priority over land archaeology, and then to potentially increase enrollment, whether it's uh, for-profit universities or otherwise. But imagine what a skilled thousand-person archaeological team could do with just one, like one acre plat of, you know, there, there's so much we could do, not just to uncover it, but to manage the soil, the other uh, chemistries and interdisciplinary sciences, to manage modern archaeology with what is coming to be nanoarchaeology. I mean, there's a lot of things to discuss with how we uncover and reveal that simultaneously looking at the societies that were literally going up, oh, there's another UFO, and that wasn't military. And, and so whether or not it is, and again, it's not that there's not entities from another planet. It's that why are you starting with the assumption that every entity you see, because they look different than you, you silly monkey, are not from here? That they're different from us? That, that they're just not genetically modified humans? In the singularity is near by Kurzweil. In the future, if you want to look like Snoopy and you and me, Charlie Brown, we could do that. It would they're just mitochondrial DNA. We can just program it. And if you don't want to even be in a, if you don't even want to have genetic material, if you want to be organic the way we know it, if you wanted to have a body that's diamondoid crystalloid, light or something, yeah, yeah, you don't have to have the body uh, every year. You know, six months, you know, you have a new body. Yeah, every cell in your body is gone. So what makes you? What what's your soul? What what makes you when every cell in the body is replaced? You're not, if you and I don't see each other for a year, we're definitely new people. Oh yeah. I thought it was three months. Every cell was replaced, but yeah. Okay. I Yeah. Well, so there's different parts of the body. Some things replace in a week, some things replace in 30 days, some place uh, in a few months. And I had heard that it was three to six months. And now um, there's some structures in the body where I'm like, okay, gosh, Okay, let's throw out a general number because apparently it's it's six months to a year. Is it more likely that most of you is brand new in about three to six months? Yes. But then I'm like, okay, guys, if you're all going to argue about this, then fine. Just say, uh, just say six months to a year. But either way, it's like a tremendous number. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, to, to think that every cell in your body is new. So who the hell are we if we're not able to morph and change what that is? over time and not over a random amount of grow time like a plant but intentionally program yourself to be younger older uh uh change your uh your talents to change your physiology to be like you said you could be a diamondoid crystalloid or a system for the organics of your cellular structure or, or you could still be organic but you could look like anything you want it's just so you want to be a reptilian you want to be a uh, gray uh, again stop whatever yeah right if you if you if you want to make the assumption that that is a different species on this planet uh it assumes well, and if that you ask all where along, they're from and they say up there that doesn't like one you don't have to believe them and two, no that's called the rick and morty thing yeah two yeah. yeah no what's your two i it's oh, my you two. don't oh, have, one, to believe you don't have to believe them and two it's like um why would they tell you yeah it's like, actually, you know, we really could help you guys out more. But again, every time we do, we screw it up. And then if we help you, we got to help others. 
or you'll just get pissed when you find out how much we could have helped you. Sorry about grandma having cancer. We definitely could have fixed that. I mean, her disease was as easily fixed as our tuning instrument for the crap we read from Mars. You know, that, that would just piss us off. That's why I say it's not aliens worse, it's us. That's part of the worst part in the title of my book. It's like, oh my God, what if, if it, I think people would lose their mind. Yeah. More we so figure out how big this cover yeah. up or whatever is, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like worse. What if we find out it really is our ancestors fault that this whole condition we live in that the, what if we find out that they literally murdered, like, look, Will, we didn't get along. You know, there were some people that looked like you, you war. and you. Okay. Yeah. What if they say, well, they wiped out 20 billion of us. So we wiped out a hundred billion of them. You know, what, what if, what if the planet really was a couple hundred billion and what if it really was integrated, but yet had its, I, the, there are some really sad points where it's like, okay, yeah, well, actually we came up with this thing and it turned out to wipe our, we wiped ourselves out or whatever it is, or uh, despite that there was X, Y, Z still in the, no matter what the story is, if it involves our ancient advanced ancestors, it involves people that whatever their explanation is, if they were openly honest, I think involves a lot of anger and frustration from people like us who, once we understand the scale and scope of it, are going to feel really betrayed and or uh, misused or used or enslaved. I think there's a lot to it that makes disclosure not practical yeah. because- And that's yeah, why I don't so. actually think true disclosure from a government entity is ever going to come. No, and uh, it's been pointed out, you know, Michael Hall and I were talking about this the other day, but the actual bill that's coming that there's going to be a release of information. Oh, yeah. Remember, there was a huge, I know, there was a huge dump of info Whatever. from the CIA. Right. So how much of it is going to be the repeat info of what the CIA, I mean, there is inter uh, sharing of information. So how much of it is just going to be a repeat of what they dumped? What was it a year ago from the CIA? Yeah. Year and a half. It's just going to be, it could just be duplicate paperwork and 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 my friends read the legislative body he, he used to work with the legislature here and he read the language it's like flight times they only really they only have they don't even have to disclose by june but specifically it's like so you saw a ship where and when and what give us a basic description that's all they're disclosing not like hey there's an underground city with a tram service Exactly. And that's, you know, the other thing is like, I'm at a point where I'm sick of like having to come from a pilot or a military person to be legit, like, or to be, you know, like, like that somehow makes you more valid. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I'm a little bit over that, uh, that storyline too. But one last thought I'll say before we go is like, maybe hell, maybe us and all the alternative community should start our own university. I, I, I you know, so, um, Michael Hall has an award ceremony for the paranormal uh, sciences. He's already hosted one and we're talking about hosting one in Florida. And so it would be a chance to recognize people who are doing research and give them an award, but also have, you know, breakout conferences, have people with like minds get together and not just rehash the same stories, but like where, what's our latest and how far have we come? What's our latest yeah, stories? What's our latest here. information? Yeah. Uh, try a session of Wim Hof, you know, do not just have morning yoga and do summer salutations to the eggplant goddess of the octopus, you know, not just do that 
And, you know, it's like, Hey, another reason to get drunk and get high. It's like, sure. But let's, let's maybe start having an annual gathering where one, we can recognize people who do the work the way, like are putting the spotlights on things like the practice or what have you. But then, uh, you know, from, from, from physicists, like all across fields of science, but basically do it like any other kind of what we would call an alien con or something, but to do it, um, with that awards ceremony in mind. So you can get your, you can get your woo woo on and you can also wear maybe a black tie. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to the, uh, yeah. Paranormal Oscars and also go to a convention and have some fun and, but do it with some of the people who are doing the work like this archeologist into call and uh, what are the latest LIDAR scans and what, what, what is the research that's pointing to uh, the front edge of what we know to be true. Um, as an arch- I meant kind of a, a way funner archaeological Congress that no one's offended when you drink. <laughs> Sounds like uh, a plan. Yeah, no, this is great. I really appreciate you having me on for the first time here. This is great. Yeah, I thank you so much for coming on. You, you've been even awesome. So yeah. This oh, is- thanks. Ha, <laughs>